Isaiah chapter 5, beginning in verse 8. Woe to those who join house to house, who add field to field until there is no more room, and you are made to dwell alone in the midst of the land. The Lord of hosts has sworn in my hearing, surely many houses shall be desolate, large and beautiful houses without inhabitant. For ten acres of vineyard shall yield but one bath, and a homer of seed shall yield but an ephah. Woe to those who rise early in the morning, that they may run after strong drink, who tarry late into the evening as wine inflaves them. They have lyre and harp, tambourine and flute and wine at their feast, but they do not regard the deeds of the Lord or see the work of his hands. Therefore my people go into exile for lack of knowledge. Their honored men go hungry, and their multitude is parched with thirst. Therefore Sheol has enlarged its appetite and opened its mouth beyond measure, And the nobility of Jerusalem and her multitude will go down, her revelers and he who exults in her. Man is humbled, and each one is brought low, and the eyes of the haughty are brought low. But the Lord of hosts is exalted in justice, and the holy God shall show himself holy in righteousness. Then shall the lambs graze as in their pasture, and nomads shall eat among the ruins of the rich." Woe to those who draw iniquity with cords of falsehood, who draw sin as with cart ropes, who say, let him be quick, let him speed his work that we may see it. Let the counsel of the Holy One of Israel draw near and let it come that we may know it. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and shrewd in their own sight. Woe to those who are heroes at drinking wine and valiant men and mixing strong drink, who acquit the guilty for a bribe and deprive the innocent of his right. Therefore, as the tongue of fire devours the stubble and as the dry grass sinks down in the flame, so their root will be as rottenness and their blossom go up like dust. For they have rejected the law of the Lord of hosts and have despised the word of the Holy One of Israel. Therefore the anger of the Lord was kindled against his people, and he stretched out his hand against them and struck them, and the mountains quaked, and their corpses were as refuse in the midst of the streets. For all this his anger is not turned away, and his hand is stretched out still. He will raise a signal for nations far away, and a whistle for them from the ends of the earth, and behold, speedily, quickly they come. None is weary, none stumbles, none slumbers or sleeps, not a waistband is loose, not a sandal strap broken. Their arrows are sharp, all their bows are bent, their horses' hoofs seem like flint, and their wheels like the whirlwind. Their roaring is like a lion, like young lions they roar, they growl and seize their prey, they carry it off and none can rescue. They will growl over it on that day like the growling of the sea, and if one looks to the land, behold, darkness and distress, and the light is darkened by its clouds." May God teach us, bless us from this terrifying, holy, and perfect word. Amen. How has God been investing grace in your life? And what is he getting in return for his labors? A couple of weeks ago when we left the vineyard, the vine dresser was looking at his harvest in disbelief. He'd picked out the choicest hill. He'd dug out the rocks and readied the soil. He'd built a watch 
tower and dug out a vat to prepare for the harvest. But when he had tasted the grapes that his vineyard produced, he was bitterly disappointed. The grace of God at work in our lives often takes forms we wouldn't prefer. God doesn't consistently give us the day, month, or year we'd have drawn up for ourselves. But we have to admit, we are normally aiming at two different things. We aim at comfort. He aims at holiness. Instead of the choice grapes of holiness, what Yahweh finds in Judah is a bunch of stink fruit. They're rotten to the core. Their lives don't merely lack godliness they are abundant in the uh, they are abundant in the production of refuge in this morning's passage continuing the vineyard metaphor god will identify some of the sins present in judah's rotten harvest he warn of the judgment that comes in the absence of genuine repentance And as he does so, we have the opportunity not just to learn these things, which we need, but also something else, something about how God sees sin, particularly the sin of his own people. That God's wrath against sin is great. There's no surprise there. We know this is so in part because of God's holiness. In verse 19, Isaiah uses his favorite title for God, the Holy One of Israel. Sinners think lightly of sin because they think lightly of God. When we gain a sense of the weightiness of God's holiness, then we begin to take sin more seriously. In our culture today, and certainly in our country this week, people are quite comfortable mocking our God and his holy word. And they can do so only because they have no real sense of his holiness. As we'll see in next week's passage, when you encounter God's holiness for real, taking him lightly is absolutely the last thing you will do. So God deals with sin in a serious way because anything less would dishonor his own holiness. And there's no exception for his own people. In fact, among us, it's even worse. All people were created to glorify God. And all people will, one way or another. But we, God's people, were also redeemed to glorify God. And that makes our hypocrisy, injustice, and wickedness doubly troubling. God is not glorified by a church that looks just like the world he redeemed it from. Many denominations had their annual conferences over the last couple of weeks. And there were many, many debates between people who want the church to look more like Christ and people who, with what they consider to be the best of intentions, want the church to look more and more like the world. This is not our calling. 
He did not establish the church with Jesus Christ as its head so that we could turn around and bury that head in the sand to conform our bodies to look more and more like the world's. No, on the contrary, as one pastor said it well, the church's mightiest influence is felt where she is different from the world in which she lives. God redeemed us for his glory. The church has a calling and an obligation to look different, to live differently, to speak differently, to love for real. He did this for his own glory. And he's not glorified by lives that have no gratitude for this great salvation. Lives that have no submission to the work of the Spirit. And lives that have no regard and no awe for the grace of God in its working in holiness. And that's how Judah's living. They're living as if God's holiness simply doesn't matter. They'll live how they want to live. They'll live however they have to live in order to have the kind of lives they want. And so they'll live like the world because that is exactly what the world does. They live how they have to live to have the lives they want to have. And that's why God must act. He must act for his own honor. And he must act for their redemptive good. Judah, though they are living like pagans, walk around proud to be counted among God's people. They assume that because they're proud of who they are, God is as well. But you cannot, to paraphrase one of the reformers, set aside God's holiness and assure yourself uninterrupted happiness. God is being patient with them, yes, but if they do not repent, the weight of their sin will fall on them rather than on Christ. Isaiah carries through this vineyard and the grapes metaphor that he started at the beginning of the chapter. He treats Judah's sin as if it's a cluster of rotten grapes. And he picks them individually and identifies six of them for us here. And these are ways that we, even as God's people, can resist the grace of God in our lives. They're ways that we, God's people, choose what we want rather than what he offers us by grace. Each of these grapes begins with the word, Woe. And these are some, not all, some of the things that they love more than God. These describe what they choose to do instead of receiving his grace and living in holiness. And these, these six things, apart from repentance, are why they will soon be under that terrifying judgment of conquest and exile at the end of this morning's text. Verses 8 through 10 are about covetousness and greed. Woe to those who join house to house and add field to field until there's no more room. They want, so they take by force if necessary. They'll lie and cheat and steal to get what they want. Why? Because they want it. Violence 
theft, oppression. We know these are evil and we know them when we see them. Yet those sins start with the one that few people can actually see. Covetousness. We've got to be so very careful about covetousness in our hearts. It's practically invisible to others. It's socially acceptable. It's practically expected in the world. And it leads to all manner of additional wickedness. Is it wrong to build a bigger house or to add more acreage to your fields? Of course not. But here it's done with a covetous and greedy heart. And therefore it's done by unjust and wicked means. When we covet, we want what isn't ours simply because God gave it to someone else. A great preacher of ancient times observed that covetous people, if they could, would take away the sunshine from the poor just because God gave it to them. They never have enough. They're never satisfied. And the punishment, the Lord warns, is quite fitting. These monstrous houses will be empty. Their ill-gotten and expansive vineyards will produce a pittance. Grace can produce marvelous returns in the Christian life. Grace can produce in you more than you ever expect is possible. But by covetousness, grace is disempowered. And whatever the godless life produces dissolves ultimately into nothing. If you've read C.S. Lewis's book, The Great Divorce, he describes hell or his hell in that book is a place where everyone lives in giant mansions, in gigantic, elaborate cities, and no one speaks to or has anything to do with anyone else. They can't because they are filled and consumed with covetousness. Woe to those who rise early in the morning, that they may run after strong drink, who tarry late into the evening as wine inflames them. They have lyre and harp, tambourine and flute and wine at their feasts, but they do not regard the deeds of the Lord or see the work of his hands. The second rotten grape appears at first to be drunkenness, but it's something more. It's hedonism, the unrestrained pursuit of pleasure. It's about the question, what invigorates Your life. Really, what invigorates your life? There is a kind of life, you see, a holy life that is fundamentally invigorated by the Holy Spirit. And it doesn't mean the person has no fun in the world. It's quite the opposite. Like the people of these verses, such a person loves music and art and poetry and sport and adventure and food and drink. But those who are invigorated by the Holy Spirit enjoy these things knowing that the world is not the source of them. They enjoy them all and everything they do as unto the Lord with thanksgiving in their hearts, with love for the God of grace and for his many graces. The people in verses 11 and 12 take these good gifts and make them their gods. 
They think satisfaction is to be found ultimately in music and in drinking and carousing and luxury. They've lost sight not only of what their real needs are, but of the God who promises to supply all their needs. They wake up early to party, to drink, and to eat. They indulge every appetite of the flesh with only the finest things. And like those who covet, their judgment will be quite fitting. Verse 14, therefore Sheol has enlarged its appetite and opened its mouth beyond measure. They who made their satisfaction of their own appetites the thing that mattered most, they will satisfy another appetite, death. They will be what is fed to Sheol to satisfy death's longing. The eyes of the haughty are brought low. Another pastor said there are basically two kinds of people in the world. And I'll interrupt to say that if what I'm about to read sounds ridiculous to you, you should consider carefully why that would sound so ridiculous. There are, he says, the sensate and the spiritual. The sensate mentality is drawn to entertainment, and the spiritual is drawn to worship. The same gospel that says, do not get drunk with wine, also says, but be filled with the Spirit. The power of grace does not lie in spiritual moderation, but in deep, repeated gulps of the Spirit. I think this may be what the world gets most wrong about Christianity. They take it as a religion of abstinence and prohibition, but it's not. Ours is a religion of indulgence and feasting. What Christianity teaches us is not that we shouldn't indulge in joy. It teaches us what we can safely indulge and joyously feast upon. But the cynic, that's the third grape and the woe of verses 18 and 19. The cynic says it doesn't matter. The distinction doesn't matter. You can do whatever you like, indulge in whatever you like, worship whatever you like, because God isn't going to do anything about it. Those verses are bitterly sarcastic. The work of God in these verses is a reference to judgment. And the cynic sees the patience of God and confuses it with indifferent inaction. He says, if God has a problem with how I'm living, he can come and stop me. And I'd say, be very careful with such words. The fourth spoiled grape of Judah's harvest seems particularly timely. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Many great authors in nonfiction and fiction alike have observed that those who control the dictionaries, the language, the history, they control the masses. And so that's what the world is always trying to do, redefine history and reality. They redefine sin and goodness. I love this quote. Using God's vocabulary, but not his dictionary. Love is not love. 
as if, another writes, they could change the nature of everything through their creativity. They think that by just saying the world as they want it to be, it somehow actually is that way. They think that words don't have meaning except the meaning they give them. But friends, nature and reality are as God made them to be. There is no redefining of terms or relabeling of virtues and vices that can overthrow his creative purposes. The fifth woe is similar. Foolishness. Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and shrewd in their own sight. Kids, where does wisdom begin? It's so simple. It's with the fear of the Lord. And what that refers to is a teachable heart, a teachable spirit, someone who is willing to learn. I bet all of you know a kid. Maybe you are this kid from time to time who's the know-it-all. Know-it-all is an easy thing to be. It puffs us up to think that we have all the answers. I act that way at times, and I shouldn't. Because in order to learn, we have to recognize that we don't know everything already. And in order to learn from God, we have to admit that not only does he know everything, but everything he knows is right. God offers us a lot of wisdom, more than we'd know what to do with. We just have to pray for it and seek it in his word. And then we can talk to others, iron sharpening irons, to think carefully about how to apply God's word, apply that wisdom. But when we reject the wisdom of God, especially because we replace it with the wisdom we think we have without him, we aren't wise at all. We're what the Bible calls fools. The last of the grapes on this rotted bunch again appears initially to be about drunkenness. Woe to those who are heroes at drinking wine and valiant men and mixing strong drink who acquit the guilty for a bribe and deprive the innocent of his right. The problem here, however, it's not their drinking, though drinking in excess is sinful. The problem here is they think that their ability to hold their liquor reveals real strength. They're proud of their behavior, holding their own at the pub. Meanwhile, in the places where they really should be strong, they are shamefully weak. They're corrupt. They take bribes. They pervert justice. They have no principles. It's a good reminder for us all. God doesn't measure strength in the pounds you can bench press or the number of people you can manipulate, or in this text, the pints you can keep down. Real strength is in standing for truth and righteousness. The world thinks that sexual conquest is a measure of strength. And the Christian understands that self-control and genuine love for others That's real strength. Pride Month is coming to an end. Roe and Casey, praise God, have been overturned. Yet a lot of Christians have spent the last 48 hours burying their heads in the sand, 
preferring for it all to be over rather than to be seen taking one side or the other. The number of Christians unable to celebrate the overturning of Roe without qualification is shameful. God measures strength in our spirit-given capacity to stand up for what's right no matter what it costs us. Is that how we're measuring it? The scoffers may not believe it, but judgment is coming for the producers of this rotten fruit. God will deal with sin, even or perhaps especially among his own people. He will deal with people who resist his grace. Look at the phrase Isaiah uses in verse 9. The Lord of hosts has sworn in my hearing. Isaiah can hear it. Heaven's outrage is audible to the prophet. For the honor of God's holiness and for the redemptive good of his people, God will act. Isaiah can see it coming and it ought to be terrifying. When the Assyrians come to conquer, when the southern kingdom is taken into captivity just as the northern kingdom was before them, God wants them to know that that is no accident of history. Verses 26 and 27 spell out a very specific path, and it's the path of non-repentance where God will call the armies of the earth to come work for his purposes, and when when he calls them, they come, and they come quickly, and they come with their weapons sharpened. They make haste to do the Lord's bidding. So can I ask you something? Do you think that God has changed? Do you think that the God whose holiness was so offended by Judah's covetousness, hedonism, cynicism, idolatry, foolishness, and corruption, do you think that God is somehow less bothered by ours? He created us for his glory. He redeemed us for his glory. Do you think his level of concern for defending those interests has waned since Isaiah preached this sermon to the people of Judah? He has not changed. Thankfully, he does not change. Not in judgment and also not in grace. Right in the middle of this cluster of rotten fruit and this terrifying judgment are verses 16 and 17. But the Lord of hosts is exalted in justice and the holy God shows himself holy in righteousness. Then shall the lambs graze as in their pasture and nomads shall eat among the ruins of the rich. If you tremble at the hearing of God's judgments because you had been scoffing at those judgments before, you're on the right track. You're right to tremble. Turn from your sin. Turn toward God in repentance. Flee the judgment of wrath stored up for those who treat the grace of his glory and redemption with contempt. But if you tremble at the hearing of his judgments... Because you know that he is holy and that in the sight of such holiness, no sinful person can stand. 
And these verses are here to your great comfort. Here's a paraphrase. Although it may seem that God is about to destroy the whole nation, he will show himself to be a faithful shepherd to his lambs, and he will feed them even from the spoils of his judgment. How does God see sin? He sees it as a resistance against his grace. And so here, even here in the message of judgment, there is grace for those who will receive it. There is hope for those who will trust in it. And there is power and joy for those who will walk in it. Sadly, Judah would not. Will we? Will we? 